0: What gives me hope is that I give hope and people respond to that hope and they want change. There aren't many that I talk to that don't want to change. A lot of the times they don't know how to change and there isn't enough of us to help them to know how to change. Because every time we try to provide hope for change, we get shut down. We get demonized. We get that bloody Harry Tammy's at it again.
1: Kia ora and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr. Nina Sue, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was brought to you by Medworld and made in association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland. Today we bring Harry Tam to the podcast. To many, Harry is a controversial character, one that has a complex history as a patched member of the mongrel mob. I think this is an important conversation to have to begin to understand why gangs are still so prevalent in New Zealand. Harry's been a lifelong activist. He's a current co-director of Hard to Reach, which is a business involved in consulting and advocating for hard to reach communities. I'm really excited to hear a story about how he got into this work and what he's doing with Hard to Reach today. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey of how you ended up here being co-director of Hard to Reach?
0: Oh, it depends how far back you wanna go.
1: (laughs) Go all the way back, all the way back.
0: I got into doing this sort of work through my mentor who was a teacher at school. He was also working with Ngā Tamatoa back in the 70s. They were considered to be radicals in their day, but they were promoting Māori rights and land rights. People like Tita Harawera, Sir Jackson, and all those Māori radicals of the 60s and 70s.
1: How did you get involved? Because my understanding is that you're also whakapapa to Chinese heritage as well. So how did you get into that?
0: Good question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just sort of trucked around with Bill who was a teacher and he ran this crash pad for young junior mob members in Hopper Street and he was also running things like small businesses like bread runs to provide jobs and he was a political refugee from Burma who had served in the Burmese government. He had to flee Burma, and he caught up with Sir Bernard Ferguson, who had just finished his term as viceroy in New Zealand. And he suggested that Bill come to New Zealand, because the district that Bill was the commissioner of had a lot of ethnic minorities. And Sir Bernard Ferguson said to Bill, young Marty are having a really tough time in New Zealand. Why don't you go to New Zealand and see what you can do? with young Māori and use your skills of working with ethnic minorities. So he, that's how he came to New Zealand. And he was teaching at Waihee College and he met James K. Baxter, the poet. And James K. was running the Jerusalem community up the Wanganui River. And of course, I don't know whether you know of James K. Baxter, but he was a very famous poet. So Bill ended up in the Jerusalem community and you're talking about probably late 60s, early 70s. And at that time, New Zealand had a a heroin problem. So anyway, James K. Baxter, he was also an alcoholic, comes from quite a well-known family. He was, what they call them, those poet laureates or whatever at Eden. So he's quite well-known. But he started this community in Jerusalem, which is up the Whanganuri River. So young people with addictions and whatever can go there and try and rehabilitate. He's probably one of the first people that started working with young gang members. So Bill went to Jerusalem, met James K, and then he ended up in Wellington. James Kay had this whole thing about building communities, community development and these people came back into the cities and started to try and replicate like an urban Jerusalem model and so that's where the crash pads and that come into Back in the 60s and 70s during that sort of hippie era, crash pads were quite a thing for the hippies, we were transient and they could crash it people's houses when they're travelling or whatever, so that, that was the sort of concept of crash pads. And of course, when you're talking about the 60s and 70s, almost at the height of urban drift in New Zealand, and so places like Wellington, they weren't really equipped to deal with people, an influx of people coming to the city for many, because they would come to the city for work, but there was no accommodation. So we fast forward to now, 2023, we have a, not a, a similar problem, a similar problem where through nine years of the national government of boosting the economy by immigration, it's created this whole housing shortage.
1: Can I bring it back to <laughs> your own story in terms of when you were growing up in New Zealand?
0: My father came to New Zealand. He was brought out to New Zealand by relatives through marriage, to work in their laundries in Dunedin, And uh, after I don't know how many years he was here before he was sent home back to China and he married my mum, came back to New Zealand, and then Japanese invaded China, and then there was Second World War, and then the Mao Zedong People's Revolution. So there was a long separation between dad marrying mum and mum coming to New Zealand. So she, she didn't get out here till, I think, 1952. So Japanese invaded China and... 1933, I think, it was in Manchuria. That's almost like a 20-year separation.
1: Oh my goodness, that's crazy.
0: <clears throat> yeah, staunch mum. Oh, I thought that, it was hard
1: because my parents like had a probably about two years or so separation between my mum, my dad coming to New Zealand, and then my mum being able to join. I thought that's hard enough because at that point they, they were able to talk to each other like once a month, and it was very expensive on the phone. And I'm like, gosh, how do we do it?
0: There's nothing. <laughs> <laughs>
1: There's nothing. <laughs> and then when my partner's away, my partner's away for a month and I'm like I'm so lonely and I talk to him twice a day on a video call.
0: (laughs) They were lucky to have letters. (laughs) That's what I mean like I I am just so full of admiration of my mother. Pretty staunch lady. Very traditional Chinese. Yeah and she came out here. She didn't have a good life really. Life is very hard in China because my mother used to tell us stories of hardship Stories where mothers would suffocate babies because they knew they couldn't feed them. And during the war, it would have been extremely hard. Yeah. Famine and all those things. So mum had a pretty hard life.
1: For Christmas a couple of years ago, I got my dad's story with, <laughs> where you get someone to write stories about themselves and at the end you publish a book. But it's taking a little while for me to go through and edit all my dad's grammatical errors. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a really interesting experience. So my dad came from Sichuan and his family were very poor growing up to the point where, so he was one of, it was actually be seven kids one of them died when they were really young but yeah they were really <coughs> impoverished during all the great leap forward cultural revolution and my dad's dad actually passed away because of malnutrition because reading the story it's really yeah. awful to think that you know that's only two degrees of separation my dad's dad living in this time where because he'd lost his ration book he was too proud to use the rations for the rest of the family and so just went without food and then actually passed away from malnutrition and it's just it's two degrees of separation really
0: yeah and my mother's father got beheaded by the japanese he was the, the village leader and apparently the japanese has sent three chinese women collaborators into do reconnaissance on their village the japanese were looking at using it as a base and the village as patriots they killed these three women for being collaborators and Japanese came back and burnt the village down and my grandfather and some of the village elders went back to see if the Japanese had left or not and they got caught and so he got beheaded, which is, as you know from Chinese, it's a very bad way to die. Not that there's any good way to die, but a very dishonourable. And my grandmother died not long after that from the loss and the grief. It just depicts the hardship that my mum went through and then that long journey. She actually survived a, a shipwreck for three days and three nights on a ferry that hit a mine after the war.
1: Oh my goodness, yeah. whereabouts?
0: She was coming back from Macau to, to Guangdong and the ship hit the mine and it. And she managed to, because it listed over, and she managed to survive three days and three nights on the side of this bloody Holy ship. Holy moly. Yeah, she's, that's what I mean,
1: she's one, one tough. Sometimes I wonder, that previous generations went through so much adversity, and the, mm. when I'm reading the stories of what my dad had been through, and I'm like, how did he turn out okay? He turned out pretty great, he's a pretty great dad, and he went through so much crap. And then our generation, it's, we, don't, we don't go through that same sort of intense adversity like that.
0: And it was that resilience, eh? say, And she had one purpose, and that was to come here and have children. It's crazy. And what, what
1: decade was it that you were growing up in New Zealand?
0: I was born in 57. So I grew up pretty much 60s and 70s. Yeah. What
1: was that like as a Chinese immigrant family in the 60s and 70s? Ah, oh,
0: wow. It was tough. The whole sort of racism, the bullying. I can't say that I had a great childhood, just the bullying, like being Asian and being small and and everyone was bigger than us and they were all very racist to Chinese. So so I guess that's where your sort of toughness comes when you grow up in that environment. And dad died when I was nine and he was an opiomatic.
1: So, in New Zealand? Yeah. So how, was there quite a bit of opium in New Zealand <clears> at <throat> oh, that time? You? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like Chinatown in Wellington, which is pretty much Haining Street and around that block, that was known as Chinatown. There was some opium dens there. And Chinese people don't really talking about it because through that era, there were quite a few of our old parents' fathers and grandfathers who were addicted to, to, to opium. See,
1: so I knew that opium was a big issue for Chinese people, but I didn't realise that it like reached you know, the other Chinese diaspora here in New Zealand as well.
0: Oh, it was everywhere. Wherever Chinese went, the same with America or Canada or because when you think about it chinese were treated very poorly in the west we were the what the yellow peril and so they were pretty much isolated like men couldn't have their woman here tax and those things so what do they do they gamble they smoke opium because they're not welcome anywhere so those are the sort of contexts i i, I suspect it's not a thing that i've really studied i've just Growing up, and then also feeling the shame of your father being an addict. There's a lot of shame. And there.
1: Like, if you were only nine, like that's quite a big, heavy thing to have someone who's nine.
0: Yeah. The other thing was that we had no relatives. See, we don't have any blood relatives here, so we were quite isolated in many ways. And basically, we were brought up just work, work. Mum had a small diner. And so we worked, and her thing was like, if you want to eat, you work. So we worked. So we started working really young, peeling potatoes, preparing, cutting cabbages, and doing whatever we Chinese. You, I wouldn't really call it Chinese food, but it did the job back in those Twins days. Our <laughs> <Pick> fried
1: rice. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: just whatever the guy loves was Chinese. He's left it up to us. That's right. That's <laughs> right. What <Well, well, laughs> pays the bills pays the bills,
1: eh? <laughs> So I understand that you've done a lot of work through Hard to Reach with engaging with Mungrel Mob and other gang fado. How did you end up helping or getting involved with Mungrel Mob?
0: Yeah, I went to Rangatai College. It was, it was a fairly academic male voice college. And, uh, and to be honest, I hated every minute of it. It was, it was just too restrictive for me. And I just found that I guess I'm an undisciplined guy and I rebelled against it. And I think... Growing up through that era, it was the era of the sort of Vietnam War, the protest movement, and I fell into that space and became... Radicalise, if you like. I started reading left-wing literature. I started reading Karl Marx's Das Kapital at sixteen, and things like that. It's quite
1: it. interesting the, the whole Karl Marx leftist stuff. My dad, having grown up in communist China, he was saying that at the time when he was growing up in that era, he got a little bit radicalised to be one of those sort of Chinese red guards or whatever you want to call mm. them. But then he had this realisation <laughs> afterwards and he's, like, he's just been going completely the other direction. He's like, no, no communism <laughs> (laughs) for me, no socialism for me.
0: (laughs) When I met Bill, Bill who had gone through this sort of fighting British for independence had a deep understanding of Marxism, Leninism. He was a United Nations diplomat. I think Uthant was the Secretary General of the UN at that time and he was it was involved in negotiating the Suez Crisis and all these things that we read about in the newspaper, and and he could explain these things to me. And so he, I guess, he became like a father figure for me, because when my dad died at nine, and not having any real male guidance, and all we did with mum was work. We worked, and we didn't have holidays. We opened seven days a week. Shop would close after the pubs closed. And when it was 10 o'clock closing, it meant that we never got to bed till 12 because when the shop closed, you had to clean up and prepare for the next day before we went to school. And then at lunchtime, we'll run home from school to help mum serve the lunchtime customers. And she can't speak English, so we had to translate for her as well.
1: Oh, classic Um, immigrant children job. Yeah,
0: yeah. So our whole life revolved around that. And as myself and my two sisters, predominantly my older sister and myself, we started to venture out and mix with other Kids of our age and that, and uh, going to the school, my interactions with the, the junior mob, and I knew quite a few of them because being brought up in Newtown, which was like the Bronx of Wellington, and I it's would've... a trendy
1: neighbourhood now, though, isn't it? Oh, isn't it?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a classic sort of shifting and middle class capture, you know. And so I knew quite a few of the guys that were now in the mob. And then I started socialising with them and also helping organise activities and pro-social things with them through Bill, and then ended up joining them.
1: What was it like at that time? I feel these days when we talk about gangs, talk about mongrel mob, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, there's that layer of they just go do crime, and that's what gangs are about. So what was it like when you had joined mongrel mob?
0: Basically, we were a bunch of young people that didn't have, actually have a lot of guidance, I got involved with the Polynesian Panther Party because my best mate at school was a big 16-stone Samoan guy and, and we virtually lived in each other's houses. He went to the community school, so I basically tagged along with him. And he wanted to know about the Polynesian Panther Party. And, of course, Bill was instrumental in... Setting up the Polynesian Panther Party in Auckland when he was teaching. And and he wasn't even high. Polynesian. No, but, but <laughs> he, he was all these
1: <laughs> ethnic minority people getting like, getting get involved. <laughs> Why are you getting so involved? <laughs>
0: so he did guys like Will William Lahia and all those, he taught them at school and politicised them. That's where the pol- <laughs> so Polynesian Panther fault. Party come from. And and anyway, and when Alan wanted to find out the Polynesian Panther Party, because oh no problem, I'll just give them a ring. And so they came down and spent a few days with us, telling us what they and invited us to Auckland to see them. And so that was my journey into the Polynesian Panther Party. We caught the overnight express from Wellington, and Bill had jacked up for me to stay with friends of theirs in Hearn Bay. Lovely, lovely flat. Overlooked at the Harbour Bridge, it was such an awesome place. And there, there was a demonstration that night. There was the Landlords Association's inaugural AGM. And anyway, so I'd never been to demonstrations so trundled off to this demonstration, you know, placards and chanting and hailers and it was happening. And Muldoon was the keynote speaker. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, the protesters pretty much lay siege to the Peter Pan Cabaret, which is where the meeting was. And then when the landlords came out, geez, they were brutal. They just attacked the protesters. And I saw girls... What getting... do you mean by attacked? Physically punched. and My goodness. And, yeah. Guys like Pat Rippon, great big huge men, bashing a young girl, things like that. And Muldoon didn't come out. And there was this talk about, oh, he's going he's to go out the back door and demonstration, rush around to the back door. Oh, no, he's coming. To- <laughs> and anyway, he eventually came out. And I can remember very very vividly, even today, seeing this flower bomb just flying over. And it hits him on the shoulder and it's big, like, flower explodes and and Muldoon turned around and just punched him (laughs) (laughs) the nearest protester who happened to have been Roger Fowler who's a good friend of mine and he was running a a community operation called the Ponsonby People's Union which was actually modelled off the Black Panthers community programme in the States they ran this huge food co-op and they had tenants protection and Things like that. What a and,
1: time to be alive!
0: Oh fuck you! You don't know what you missed, mate. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. <laughs> Honestly, it was Protest, great. Protest,
1: radicalising.
0: Oh, oh you know, like they, they. Dismism. Oh, mate, when tenants were getting evicted, they had a tenants' protection squad. There, they would come to the centre, grab their placards. <laughs> <laughs> Trundle and run and put a picket line across the house. We just don't see things like that. Obviously, our young people just had no idea of what activism really is. <laughs>
1: yeah. Do you feel like there's like a sense of slactivism in, in this generation?
0: complacency and the thing is that direct action. We've seen a bit here in Wellington where they've been lying on the main roads to block off the tunnel and stuff like that for to fight global warming and stuff like that. It's
1: but- just interesting I saw in the news recently so there was a pride parade I think in London or the UK somewhere and there were people who were part of Stop Oil and Gas I think and then there were also LGBTQ members of Stop Oil Gas and so there was a big I think a double-decker bus with Coca-Cola as a sponsor, and then these stop oil and gas people were like, no, we're going to put a demonstration on your parade, and then there's all these people lying in front of the Pride Parade Coca-Cola bus, <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay, and the left fragmenting a little bit.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there was quite a lot of that back in the day, because that was, the, I think, the anti-war era, anti-Vietnam War era anti vietnam war That kind of created a space where young people were rebelling and were questioning authority. Why are we going to war? Why are we going over to Vietnam? For what for? And so when the war was over, they weren't being drafted anymore. They got on with their university studies, became middle class. And and it just shows the influence of youth culture from America throughout the world. And we became placid. We, We lost that sort of... Drive and then, and then by the 80s, you had neoliberalism come in, and people either assimilated to that doctrine or you became impoverished even more. We had economic decline before the economic decline because most of our people were unskilled, uneducated, and a lot of them had a lot of issues. Like, I keep on talking about the stuff that's coming out of the Royal Commission. Many of these guys had been in boys' homes, and they've been institutionalised, and they've been traumatised. So that is part of the way in which they reacted and behaved. What of people... was
1: happening with these boys' homes? What was the structure, and how did these boys end up in these boys' homes? Well,
0: a lot of them ended up in the city by themselves. They might have came down with some rallies or some other people or home wasn't a good place. There was a lot of... You're talking about the era of the booze barns. And that. what I mean by that was that we went through this period where they built taverns. Like before that, they were hotels, and hotels had to have accommodation. Taverns didn't. And they were these huge, great, big... fucking it's basically a big room and people would go in there and drink as much booze as they can till 10 o'clock it used to be six o'clock but then it became 10 o'clock and then they'll wander off to some party and continue drinking to all hours of the night and day and the parents often were in these places boozing and the kids were left to their own devices and then you had family violence when people got drunk and the violence took place in front of the kids. The kids were molested by the uncle bullies and the, and so home wasn't necessarily a good place. And there was a lot of transiency because it was hard for Māori to find homes because landlords were fucking racist. But then um, with
1: the whole alcohol and everything, it's still an issue at the moment. And from looking at the history of prohibition, that's been quite harmful in terms of alcoholism and all that. So what was the driver behind all these people spending all this time in the tavern getting drunk?
0: There's more research now about the impacts of colonisation and trauma. So when people have had their lands taken from them and all those, you start having this sort of intergenerational trauma that's transferred intergenerationally. And so many people are using... Alcohol or drugs as a means to self-medicate. So when your life's not good, you just don't want to think about it.
1: So what happened with opium? If opium had been quite readily available way back in the fifties, sixties, how did you know how did that become less available? And now our focus is on methamphetamine.
0: I suspect when the Mister Asia syndicate folded, that the source of heroin was reduced. People go and buy codeine tablets and turn it into synthetic morphine or whatever. And then, different periods, you have different drugs that get introduced, people use recreationally marijuana, heroin, LSD. You know, there's trends and fashions of drugs and the people that supply them they know which drugs to supply. It's like any free market, you've got to know your market. If the demands for meth, you supply meth. If there's demand for whatever they'll adapt to it like people are always gonna use drugs recreationally one way or another. So there's this thing about harm reduction or rehabilitation or, or both. I think you basically need both. And I think About that time, there was a gang war in Christchurch between the Devil's Henchmen and the Epitaph Riders. The original henchmen were prospects for the Epitaph Riders, but they didn't make the grade. So they went and set up their own club called the Devil's Henchmen, which the Epitaph Riders wanted to close down. And basically, you had men fighting boys because these henchmen were really young guys. So they couldn't really foot it with the Ep's and the physical, so they started using guns. So that's the first With guns and gang warfare really became prominent. And the henchmen didn't do very good with the guns either, because I think a couple of them got shot and killed by the Ptahf rioters. And so whenever you have these disturbances, all of a sudden there's this whole crime, hard-on crime stance. And Building up to the seventy-three election, or seventy two or seventy three, but anyway, Norman Kirk promised to take the bikes away from the bikies. That was his election platform. And of course, when he got into government and realised he couldn't couldn't take the white bikes away from the bikies because one, you can't he couldn't define what a gang was. Right? Can
1: we can we still define what a gang is? No,
0: no. But there's a couple of common denominators, and one, it's a group, and two, they're involved in some sort of crime and then more recently we've moved away from that and we started calling them organised criminal groups. And again, what constitutes an organised criminal group? But anyway, when we came back to Wellington, we started to do pig patrols here as well. And it was through that process we were picking up some of these younger street kids and taking them home, and Bill and Fran would work with them, help them get a job or get them back into school, and re- reconnect them with their families. And then one of the social workers from the Department of Social Welfare approached Bill and Fran, that's his wife, to see if they would run a family home for social welfare out in Poriru. And Bill said to me, he said, why don't you come and live with us and help us with the young boys that are come to stay with us? So I went and lived out there. And that's that was where I started to understand. It was when I first started to encounter Traumatized people that I hadn't encountered before. So I'd be in a bedroom and there'd be two, three sets of bunks and I'd be bunking in with these young boys that just come at a court teddy and fucking mischievous. Yeah. <laughs> they joke and they'll play guitars and, and fuck, they, they were just so funny. But I I'd always remember waking up in the middle of the, in the night, these kids screaming, and I didn't know why. I was pretty young myself, I about 17. But only now, in later life, that I realised that these kids have been traumatised. This is their traumas coming back, their nightmares. So that's where I started developing and understanding that boys' homes, and also hearing the stories, they were good places. But they didn't really talk about the sexual abuse that they encountered. I found that out much later, just living with the mob, when you're close enough to people things starts coming out in, in conversations. So you start developing and understanding why do we behave the way we behave? When love is breaking the crap out of your best mate, and it's love. And then you start understanding how does gang rivalry comes about? Because the system used. so their carers were the perpetrators of violence and sexual violence. But not only that, they'll get the bigger boys, which they call the kingpins, to run the place for them. In other words, they would beat up the small guys. Yeah, But when you've been beaten up, you don't forget. And then you end up in different gangs. So that's where the violence comes from. So that was part of my journey of learning and understanding why people behave the way they do.
1: If you'd like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. What kind of work are you doing with Hard to Reach? Right now, we run the
0: Kahakura Meth Rehab in Hawke's Bay.
1: Can you tell us a bit more about the work that you guys are doing at Kakakura?
0: We don't do it so much as we administer it. So I was instrumental in helping design and develop it with the people, with our leaders up there in the Hawke's Bay, because we recognised we had a huge meth problem with our members, with a high number of suicides. Basically you had one faction supplying to the other faction and People ended up in terrible mental health spaces of of depression and hopelessness. And it was a real challenge to the leadership of what we can do about it. And so we came together and we thought, okay, let's look at how we can reduce it. And so we came up with a concept of utilising traditional Māori healing methods and the Western clinical methods. And then for the next three years, we started to do things like one of the leaders went away and she trained in war. We had another person that trained as a clinician. She had been involved in addiction herself, but we had run a rehab jointly with the Salvation Army under the John Key government. And so this person went and got herself healed and clean, and then she went and trained as an alcohol and drug clinician. And we ran Wānanga on Rumi Rumi, and so it's just what we call mobilisation. It's about energising our people, getting them used to be in that space. And I always think about if you want to plant a plant, you don't just stick it in the ground, you've got to till the soil.
1: A lot of people, and it's probably very unfair how the media have portrayed it, but I think a lot of it has been portrayed as, oh, why are we just giving money to the gangs? I think that's a lot of how it's been portrayed, but it sounds like it's not just money for the gangs. It's just people who are professional people who are running the show. Oh,
0: yeah. We don't make any money out of it, (laughs) put it that way. By the time you hire the marae and you pay off your clinicians and pay for the food, there's not a lot left. This is not a money-making scheme. This money isn't
1: going to the gangs, is it?
0: No. We pay some of the gang members who have done the programme and they become peer support workers. So why wouldn't we pay them? It's a job. Is that giving money to the gangs? No, that's paying them for services they've performed.
1: And how long has Kawakura been around for?
0: Uh, This is our second year, going into third year. Yeah, and do you because, guys
1: have any stats on you know, how many people you've been able to keep off of meth or anything like that? Or
0: Yeah, I think tomorrow we're going to celebrate, I think, between 12 to 13 that have been one year clean. We've had people that are over two years clean that have got their children back from Oranga Tamariki.
1: Oh, incredible.
0: You know, the media and the politicians, they don't want to see that. But to have that many people not relapse, that's, that for meth is incredible.
1: How much funding is going towards the Kakakura program?
0: We were given 2.75 over three years.
1: What's. Very Which little is, money over three. It's, it's, it's nothing. <laughs> it's absolutely nothing
0: because when you, let's put it into context to, to your sort of gold standard rehabilitation, like the Odyssey <laughs> houses and the Moana houses, their programs run anywhere between eight months to twelve months. Ours is only eight weeks. Because right? I
1: guess the Kaukauna, it's much more of a community-based program, is that right? Like it's not a residential program. It's that you come, you're still with your family. No, they live. Oh, they the live on the Marai. side. We
0: were the first. Seoul Malay based program because we recognized when we ran our first program with the Salvation Army they pretty much just implemented a bridge model and when we did and they they said to us oh you can do that on saturday afternoon and we said no, because in some ways their relationship with us transformed the Salvation Army because they didn't really appreciate the impact that tikanga had in terms of building resilience with our people. But in that journey of five years, they realised how important tikanga was and it challenged them to up their game in being responsive to to tikanga Māori. So it was a good experience for both of us learning off each other. So when we designed this programme we wanted to be heavily tikanga based And, and that's why we went to the iwi. We went to the iwi chair to get his support and that's why it was based on the marae and he mobilised the Tai Whenua to get in to support it because he could see the impacts that meth was having on his people in, in the Hawke's Bay area. It's unfortunate and it's sad that the people that could really tell the story don't. They choose not to. So we just soldier on and hopefully the results will speak for themselves.
1: How likely do you think is that the programme will continue to go?
0: The signals aren't good, like with the whole politicisation of it and you would have heard national parties announcing their, their gang policies and that. So I think the writing's on the wall that this isn't something that they would support.
1: What has happened with like previous crime policy and what effect has that had on gangs? I guess the thing that's on a lot of people's mind right now, right, is why is gang new gang membership on the rise?
0: I think the thing is that new gang membership's been on the rise because, quite simply, we've never actually addressed the problem properly. If increase in numbers of crime, right, or membership is a barometer to measure successful or failure of policies, then we know that the tough on crime doesn't work because the tougher you get in crime, the more crime there is. The tougher you're on gangs, the more gang members there
1: are, right? But how does that work, though? I feel like there are a lot of people throwing out all these... Simple solutions to complex problems, and it's really easy for it to make a sound bite of "oh, we're going to be tough on crime," and people fall for that really easily because people like simple solutions. So, what is the solution then? How do we get people out of gangs? How do we stop people from well, joining gangs?
0: Well, well, the thing is, you know, when we keep on perpetuating sort of moral panics. That's why people think that way. There's a reason why people think like that, right? People don't just think like that because they wake up in the morning and think like that. They're conditioned to thinking like that. So you have this sort of tag team thing between the politicians and the media. To sell papers or sell airspace, politicians are to make political gains out of it. So as long as you keep on perpetuating this myth, I mean, that's what advertising is all about, right? So. Unless the media is going to be responsible, and if you read any government report on gangs or crime, there is always a section about criticising the lack of responsibility by the media. No one holds the media to account on their irresponsible reporting.
1: Can you give like, me some examples of irresponsible reporting?
0: It was like the, the ram-raid one. All the public needs to know is that a group of young people when it drove through the mall and, and stole some things, right? They didn't need the video footage They basically glamorized it and planted ideas into other young people to come up with a similar thing or worse, right? That's where you start glamorizing crime. And those whose mental space so disaffected, they all start duplicating that. That then gives the media more reasons to report more of it in a more sensationalised fashion, because the other media sources will start competing. Then the politicians, that's you know, like a tag team, right? Tag, your turn, yeah? And then they'll come out and make all these statements, and then the media camera goes there. And so you, you can see this happening, and that's exactly what happened, like, between National and Labour, because when National start doing that, you could see their poll ratings going up. Then Labour had to get tough on crimes, you know? They got rid of the previous Minister of Police that put kid- tapu ellen there and and chris hipkin came in and and, you know they changed the laws and so you start escalating it up but in reality all we're doing is making a rod for our own back when the public realizes you've actually haven't made it safer you've made it bloody well worse the media's not going to tell you that because how does
1: being how does being tough on crime make crime worse
0: well okay if you have a look at this just have a look at a global situation you know the first world war they had an armistice was that Germany was held accountable for starting the war and they were made to pay the Allied nations. So what came out of that? disaffection from the German people and the rise of Hitler. Yeah, So the tougher you're on somebody, the worse it gets, right? And so Hitler came out and you had the Second World War. So what did the Allies do after that? The Marshall Plan helped the Germans develop the economy. So, you know, you have one of the most powerful economies in the bloody world. Same with Japan. When you try to oppress the natural instincts to fight back, and you know, so this is this is what we don't recognise. You know, there, there's the global examples of this. But we don't want to learn that because we don't score any political points. We don't sell any newspapers. So what's, what
1: kind of oppression is happening at the moment?
0: Well, the thing is that what we're not doing is developing an understanding of the causes of these things, of why people behave like this. You know, that's the story that we should be telling. It wouldn’t it be great if politicians starts competing with each other on how to fix the problem because we understand the problem and the causes of the problem rather than just be tough on crime.
1: So I imagine your story of how you joined the gang was that you got radicalised and you wanted to get involved in activism and that's how you joined Mob. But I imagine that there are a lot of people who have a different journey to joining gangs of such. Could you give us an example of how? Because it sounds like it's something that people wouldn't just one day wake up and decide to join a gang. I assume that there's some sort of journey of experiences and all that. Could you give us sort of an example of how people end up in gangs?
0: There isn't a single story that fits. People will all have their own stories and their own reasons for joining, right? And there may be some common denominators. And a lot of those common denominators that, that academics talk about is the lack of family connections, the disconnection from society, their own traumas. You see, gangs, they're not judgmental on what you do. So when people feel they're being judged, they move away. They find this space where they don't care what you've done. As long as you're accepted into that community, you're accepted. Whereas if this person's walking down the road, oh, look at him, he's a gang member. You know? And a lot of our people haven't been accepted. They do feel rejection in many ways whether it's just self-imposed, but more likely because there are things that have been happening in their lives that we don't understand. And because we don't understand them, we treat them differently and they feel that. Because humans are social beings, they're looking for somewhere that they can fit in. Put it this way, for example, your father was very violent towards your mother, and he was very violent towards you. And your father had a huge alcohol problem. Most of his money was spent on alcohol, and you come from a big family. And you've had broken bones from the violence from your father. You've gone hungry because there's no food. And at eight, you got taken off your family and put into Oranga Tamariki for care and protection. You pine for your mother, so you run away. You get caught, but before you get caught, you've been living on the streets, you got no money, so you shoplift, you break into a house, not to steal anything, but just to have a shower, but you happen to see a pair of shoes that might fit you, so you took it, and then you get caught, you get sentenced through the youth court, you get put back into the home, and your carer that's been paid to care for you is abusing you, so you run away again. So your life becomes institutionalised. Patterns start becomes the norm. And then you graduate into the adult system because you're no longer a youth, you're 18 now. You go to prison, yeah? And you've got a more intense version of that from prison. And then you find that the prison's divided up between different groups. And if you don't belong to one of those groups, you've got no protection. So the whole thing starts snowballing. But when you finish your prison centre, you've got no ID. You can't even get on the benefit. So you go and see your cousin who's literate. She goes down to Wins with you. Helps you sign up for the Benny. Only thing is that she gave Wins her bank account and not yours. What do you know? Oh, i go down to Pack and Save and I'll just grab something and tuck it under my jacket. Security guard catches you oh, back in jail. Go through that whole whole night nightmare again, yeah? And then somehow you end up having a bit of a relationship with another person that is not dissimilar to you. The whole cycle repeats itself and repeats itself, yeah.
1: How so, can we as a society change to stop that? Because that sounds like a really hard cycle to break.
0: Well, it's hard because we don't talk about it. We don't talk about the realism of what causes people to do what they do. If we understand that, then we might look at it differently. Because you see, this tough one, crime rhetoric, is basically making a ride for our own back in many ways. Because when people come out, eventually, they're worse than before they went in, right? And secondly, who's going to pay for their keep? Who's going to pay to build the prisons to hold them? Who's going to pay the guards to fucking look after them? Or, yeah, because I was know, saying somewhere to, it's between
1: hundred and fifty dollars to $190,000 per inmate per year at our prisons. And yeah. I just think, what kind of business investment do we think we would spend that much? March on one person and accept that they'll be worse on the other side, it doesn't really make any sense.
0: Look, we, we could probably bribe them out of crime if we gave them 190000 a year. <laughs> 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 I, mean, I mean, you know, I mean, this is the thing is that you see because a tough one crime, national haven't explained what it's going to cost the country, you know?
1: Because at the moment, I think I was looking at some stats about the prisons and our prison occupancy rate so the total number of prisoners anyway, inmates, is actually quite low compared to like in the past. And I guess one of the arguments that people are saying is, well, we have only a few prisoners in prison at the moment and all this crime happening. Well, maybe we do need to be putting more people into the prison.
0: But, but the criminologists are telling us that the crimes has dropped. Right? Is that right? Yeah, well, that's what the informed people are telling us, right? The uninformed people keep on telling us the opposite. You cannot have a rational approach with irrational conversations. You know, this whole thing is that you've got to start looking through it all and say, well, actually, what's this actually all about? What it's all about is there's someone making a lot of money out of this. I have no doubts that they've probably funded these political parties and these lobby groups because they profit from it. And you know, you're not talking about a little company down the road, you're talking about international conglomerates. You know, the push for private prisons in this country has been going on for 30 years. So this is what is happening. And because we're not having an informed discussion and seeing through the drivers of why this tough on crime thing is happening, because it doesn't just happen here, it happens throughout the whole Western developed world, because there's this penal industrial complex that are owned by virtually about five or six international conglomerates that have all these subsidiary different names that, that runs private prisons. But it's not just the prisons, it's the gear, the pepper spray, the batons. You know, someone's making a lot of money. It's it ain't, it really ain't us, it ain't us, you know. <laughs> it ain't the public, it ain't the taxpayer, we're just paying for it. And we think we're getting feeling safe. but every three years we feel more unsafe than we did before, all right?
1: What kind of return on investment is that?
0: Exactly. We're not telling them that. And we keep our heads in the sand so we don't actually see through what the drivers of this rhetoric is. Now, I didn't make this story up. Now, read it up online. It's happening throughout the the whole Western world. You know, when you talk about 190,000 per year for a prisoner, you can triple that because you haven't factored in the lawyers, the judges, that whole industry before the person gets to jail. You know, the policeman, a policeman has a police car, he has a, a watch house sergeant, you know, he's got a whole police department. we all pay for it.
1: So if you could do three things right now to change how we do things in society to prevent gangs, prevent people joining gangs or prevent people doing crime and going to jail, what would you do?
0: Well the first thing I'll do is I forget about trying to prevent people joining gangs and I f- forget about preventing gangs what we want to prevent is bad behavior right let's focus on changing behaviors rather than changing people's affiliations right we all need somebody right we all social creatures we need to be with people right why would you want to take them away from the community that they belong to what we should be focused on is how do we change the pattern of behavior that is causing harm to themselves and to us and to others right and how would you do that Well, doing what we've been doing and doing more of it with more resources to do it. And having people that actually understand the problem and can work with those people and engage them and help them devise their own solutions to their problems like Kaku It's working because it's theirs. It's run by their leader. They don't want to let the leader down. Take a look at your home life. You won't want to let your partner down. You won't want to let your kid down. It's yours. It's your family. Because no the
1: people that have the biggest stakeholders in this is the community, and I just feel like communities have been disempowered to actually make the difference for their people.
0: Yeah, because someone out there is controlling the narrative, and they're spoon-feeding bullshit to our communities. And our communities haven't been educated and informed enough to see through the bullshit.
1: How much change do you think needs to happen within the communities in terms of like within gang Fano?
0: Sorry, just reframe that question again.
1: How much change needs to happen within the gangs? Because, you know, there's the things that I've read in the media about senior people in the gangs wanting to make these changes, wanting to make the changes for their fano for their community, but then there will always be the odd person that comes up in the media. I just remember reading this story about somebody who was the right-hand man of one of the gang leaders who got caught being part of a drug ring, which was obviously very disappointing for the people who were within the gang wanting to create change to get people off meth.
0: I I think, I think you're saying, let me just put a perspective on it, that the public perception is that when one of us does something, we all do it. we all the same. Yeah. The logic that we don't apply no. is that men in suits, businessmen in suits are all pedophiles. How do we know that? Ron Briley, got a whole briefcase and laptop full of pe- pedophile. Then we've just got this millionaire businessman, Rich Lister. Five years name suppression during three years. But that's the same logic, you see. But we don't we don't see millionaire businessmen as pedophiles, do we? We see them as sirs and knights, yeah? On this other side that happen to be predominantly darker than those white folks that don't have the money to buy flash suits and they don't walk around with laptops full of pedophiles. They're called gangsters. See, that's the nonsense, isn't it? Because we are intentionally not informing people the realities and the truth behind things. When you take a look, again, the Royal Commission, when the state employed people like health professionals, Dr. Leakes, who then employed others that abused the shit out of people and used tools for medicine to torture people. And then when these people are harmed, and they want redress, the system closes ranks and effectively covers it all up to make sure that these people don't get redress all the way to Crown Law. What's the message you're giving these people, hey, through that process?
1: That they don't matter.
0: Not only that, they don't matter, it's worse than they don't matter. Yeah. When you're denying them their rights at every fucking part of their life, it's more than you don't matter. It's like I want to get rid of you. You're a nuisance. Yeah. So unless we put it out there and understand the whakapapa to this dysfunction. And we continue it. So you have the Children's Commission that was really vocal. With so you get rid of them. Children's Commission no longer exists. We've got a new panel or whatever they call it now. People are still going into homes. Young kids are still going in there. And we wonder, oh, there's a prop the other day.
1: Yeah, I saw in the news the other day yeah. something about, you know, two different yeah carers have been caught abusing kids. And I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. the cycle continues.
0: Mm-hmm. So the thing is, unless I think you you got to look at it different phases because to do anything, is like you become a paediatrician, right? You learned your practice, right? Same too with understanding why people behave the way they do, why do gangs exist, until we actually can speak about that openly, so we actually understand the problem, we will never understand solutions because we're taught not to. I mean, that, this is the only reason why I bother coming on doing this podcast here because there's very few forums for for us to talk about this. And dare you even start that conversation, you get labelled that fucking Harry Tam fucking at it again. I mean, <laughs> you should you should see you know, like like the fucking National Party—they've been trolling my Facebook page and they put out really? a, yeah they put out a fucking news release on me yesterday, encouraging our people to register so they can be part of the democratic process.
1: And uh, they uh, cited you, they referenced you. Oh, no, no, no. oh
0: fuck yeah. <laughs> you, you jump on fucking Chris Bishop's page and, and, and Simeon Brown so they've, they've actually taken screenshots of my Facebook post and stuck it on theirs and said he's champion Labour and Greens would it make any difference if i encourage our people to vote national and act I mean you know this is you get demonised for, for trying to inform
1: your people because you're not just somebody who works with people from the mongrel mob you've had a lot of experience in public policy haven't you
0: yeah, I've had huge experience. You know, I'm, I'm not a dumbass. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they probably wish I was.
1: Could you tell me about how your experience within Munger Mob and also your experience of public policy, how they play together, how they affect each other?
0: Well, I never thought about it like that, really. I mean, one thing that I did know when I was involved in public policy, the difference between myself and many of my colleagues was that I had that lived experience. I didn't just read books. Yeah, I went out and done things. I lived the life. So when we talked about crime or gangs or whatever, I mean, I've done it. I didn't read about it. I didn't need a literature review to tell me. Did you
1: yourself ever end up in the justice system?
0: Yeah, I've been in the system a couple of times. I've never been to prison. But beside the point is the difference between being informed and being informed with lived experience. That's the difference, right? So the story that I told you about the guys that I was bunking with that were screaming in the middle of the night. Yeah, you can read about young people being traumatised, being victims of abuse. Yeah, that's one thing. But to actually be in there with them when they're screaming it's two different things. And that feeling why is he like that? Dunno didn't understand that this this kid's got some trauma going on. And it wasn't until I was talking to Bill and Fran said, hey, you know, the other night, what's his name? He's been like that for a couple of nights now. You know, and I said, oh, shits, there's some bad things obviously happened. We need to get this young person to see so-and-so and whatever. So you learn about these things because you're there. You know, you had to wake up in the middle of the night with them. There's a difference between reading about a scream and hearing a fucking scream so that's what made me different from my colleagues you know and when i talked about how does this happen you know where does the economics come into this you know if you take a look for example from pretty much from 1984 to where we are now which is over three decades right we pretty much went from recession to recession and if you're unskilled or semi-skilled, you're working in unskilled, semi-skilled jobs. So whenever there's a recession, that's the point of the greatest impact. You're the
1: first to go. Your job's the first first to go.
0: Yeah, you're the last to be employed and you're the first to be sacked, right? And when you've gone through two or three or four of these recessions, you get the picture, right? Don't bother getting the job because you're going to lose it. And when you lose it, back then, I don't know what the criteria is now, but before you could get the dole, you got stood down for six months, six weeks or whatever it was, right? That means you're out of pocket for money and you desperately don't have any because you're on such a low income anyway. So you get the message and you think, well, I'm not going to bother getting a job when jobs are out. I'm just going to stay on the benefit and I'll do a bit of this and I'll do a bit of that to supplement my income. So when your son's 21st is coming on August 23rd, what do you do? The previous year, you'll get a crop down, and it'll be ready by Easter, you'll sell it. And that'll supplement your income. Trouble is, if your crop gets ripped off, you can't go to the police, yeah? So what do you do? You drive around with a softball bat in your car and a sawn-off shotgun under the bed, and when your missus tell you to get rid of it, you beat her up right in front of the kids. That's your revolving cycle, because our people have been taught to be like that, because that was their means of survival. What is underpinned is these economic drivers that impact on our communities in these sorts of ways. You can't read about this. No one writes about this. I see it. I live it. The gang families I I was with, the member was on the unemployment benefit. The partner wasn't on DPB. What did that mean? It meant the kids were with mum and dad was doing whatever dad was doing, right? And when Ruth Richardson came out with the mother of all budgets and implemented those benefit cuts, you know what happened? Well, in our community, they got smart. They said, oh, well, we'll both go on the DPB because it's a higher rate anyway.
1: What's the DPB?
0: The domestic people's benefit. And so the boys went with dad and the girls stayed with mum. So wherever dad went to do his gang deals or whatever, the son's getting the train from yay high. Now you've got third generation gang members that know nothing else but just that lifestyle because economic policies shape the way our families live. You can't read about it because economists don't look at it like that. But when you live it, when you see that happening, you know about it.
1: And what's at stake for us? Why is it so important that we need to focus on these hard to reach communities?
0: Well, the first thing is to be aware to understand why people are like that because if you don't understand the problem you've got no hope of coming with the right solution but we're never going to understand the problem because we cannot have this conversation without it being shut down and that goes back to who controls the media who controls the policies that underpin these situations so even if you want to look at urban drift urban drift didn't happen just because it was a nice thing to happen. It was driven economically, because after the Second World War was the introduction of Keynesian economics. Keynesian economics in this country meant the growth of manufacturing, and the growth of manufacturing had a demand for labour. There was labour shortages, which is why urban drift took place. And when urban drift wasn't enough to fulfil the demands of the factories, we brought people in from the Pacific. And when there was an economic recession or depression, we didn't want them.
1: And so if we keep going the route that we're going, this concern about crime and this need to be tough on crime, what do you think is going to happen?
0: Well, just the same as what's happening now. More intense, you know, because it is so much harder now to make change with third generation. You imagine the fourth and fifth, how much harder that's going to be. Because when people are brought up in a certain lifestyle, and that's the only lifestyle they know, we're going to work isn't the norm, and that's well entrenched. Like I see little kids walking around with patches these days, little toddlers. They ain't got a hope in hell of not being a gangster, so forget about people not being in a gang, right? It ain't going to happen. Let's focus on how do we fix the harm that's been done.
1: What gives you hope to keep working in the way that you do?
0: What gives me hope is that I give hope and people respond to that hope and they want change. There aren't many that I talk to that don't want to change. A lot of the times they don't know how to change and there isn't enough of us to help them to know how to change. Because every time we try to provide hope for change, we get shut down. We get demonized. We get bloody Harry Tammy's at it again. How extreme is that? Trolling my Facebook page.
1: That's <laughs> <laughs> eh? a bit extreme. <laughs> hey?
0: Come okay. on. Come You're come just on. one guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm just a, an elderly fucking Chinaman for fuck's sake. <laughs> you know, that, that happens to know something that, that some people will listen to. Even they listen to me for the wrong fucking reasons. <laughs>
1: so we'll have time for just one last question. Shin Harry what is the best book you've ever read
0: the best book that I've ever read have to be the little red book <laughs> see 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 you should know you should know what that is because your father would have had a copy. Uh, he, uh, I'm sure I'm sure he
1: would have read it yeah 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 did you read it in Chinese or did you read it in English
0: the thoughts of German now. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can still remember. I can still remember those pictures of the red guards still with the little red cars. I guess. I guess to be honestly truthful, there is always one thing that I remember out of the little red book, and it's the story about the foolish old man that moved the mountain. That inspires me.
1: Please tell me more. You're Chinese. You should know this. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the little red book was something that my dad would not have let, made me read. <laughs>
0: Well, the foolish old man that moved the mountain is really about persistence, which is Chinese. He's based, Mao just took a Chinese story and put it in this book. And basically, he said, Oh man, gonna move the mountain from here to there. And he started digging and dug and he dug and he dug and he dug and he died. And then the sons carried on and the sons carried on, his great grandsons carried on. And eventually, the mountain shifted. Yeah. So it's about perseverance. It's having the vision, knowing where you need to be, and you start, you start digging. And, those that come after you will continue to dig if they share that vision with you, yeah? So there's, there's
1: some- Or you could do something <laughs> that doesn't kill you.
0: <laughs> well, we always we say, you know, I, mean, I do, yeah. You know?
1: <laughs> That's interesting. I remember one time, it was either while I was in school in China or it was when I was doing like a weekend Chinese class as first-generation immigrant kids do, mm-hmm. and I remember we did do a story and it was, this must have been in China, actually, and it was a story... I think it was related to the World War II. And it was a story about this farm kid who gets asked by these two Japanese soldiers, where is the village? Cause they didn't know where the village was. And the young boy knew that these were the bad guys. And so decided I'm gonna lie and not tell these people where the village is. And he led them somewhere else mm-hmm. to, so that they wouldn't know where the village was. He protected the village, but obviously the soldiers found out and they killed him. And I think I was 10 years old when I was given this story at school and my dad just was almost through a fit because he just thought I can't believe that young children are being indoctrinated with this idea of that they should sacrifice themselves for their country so that's that's my story
0: <laughs> well it's not the similar to my mum's story though is it? you know? it's what yeah. happened to her father you know so yeah. it's, it's, it's very real
1: gosh Oh, there's some real trauma about being an immigrant Chinese kid, isn't it? Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, um, go online and we'll look at that um, Joy Luck Club.
1: Yeah. yeah. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Harry. Oh,
0: it'll well, be nice nice to meet up with you
1: sometime. Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as Tangata Whenua and to, to your Waitangi Partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap.